0: Like, I thought about it for a long time after visiting. Like, I was having dreams about the, the place and just dreams about being out there. Uh, and so, you know, basing, like, life decisions on dreams versus basing them on data, like, those are two kind of opposite extremes. But they all kind of funneled into this, this decision to make this change in our life
1: it's what's the point from 538 my name is jody Abergan. this week the story of a data reporter who found himself confronted with the real people and places behind a data set chris ingram writes for the washington post and last summer he did a blog post about what he called the worst place to live in america i'll just go ahead and spoil the story turns out chris is now moving to that place He's here to talk about it and why he's making the move and what it says about data versus reality. That's in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Look, can I can I tell you a number? Go ahead, tell me your number. Okay actually a couple of numbers it's one in 3333 which is the the odds that texas a&m had coming back against the university of northern iowa so i don't know if you were watching this game yeah the iowa win. they took a i1 out they were down by 12 points with 35 seconds left and they came back to win that was awesome you
2: know what what that remind me when reggie miller Nailed down the net. I think it was nine points. He made three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine. The Reggie Miller nine.
1: Knicks killer moment.
2: Yeah, that, that's what I remember. Me that right. the way they come back. They come well, back. I don't know how they did it It's so little bit of time.
1: I don't even think Reggie Miller's odds were that bad. One in three thousand three hundred thirty. I'm telling
2: you, I don't. I don't believe. I don't see. I don't
1: know how they made it in such a you know few seconds. So one more question, which is: in that situation, do you feel? more excited for the team that made the comeback or feel like heartbroken for the team that blew it?
2: No. I'm I'm really feel excited for the team that made the comeback. So you that's you and I are different that way. I feel really bad for the kids who blew it. No 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 I feel I feel excited for the team that make the effort to come back and such a bit different and in such a little bit of time.
1: Here to talk about the one in three thousand point three. Point three. Don't forget the point three is uh Neil Payne, sports writer for five thirty eight and panelist on our sports show, Hot Takedown. And Neil, I know that like everyone is freaking out about this comeback. A lot of people have talked about it by the time. Some people are listening to this podcast. It will have been, you know, a fair amount in the past. But like it is hard for me to get over how crazy of a comeback moment that was i've watched the clip on youtube of you know the the uni meltdown Over and over and over. So, I don't know. Let's just revel in it again. Like, how do you calculate? How do you even start to put math around something that insane?
2: I think uh, this is one of those points where it becomes kind of fuzzy. So, our 1 in 3,333.3, it sounds really exact, but it could be 1 in 3,000. It could be 1 in 4,000. You start getting to sort of the edge of what could be uh, described by these wind probability models because it was something that really hadn't ever happened before. For. so it 's all based or underpinned by the theory of you know how much uh, you know how often could a team come back from a certain deficit with a certain amount of time left. but if you think about all the things that had to happen in order for them to come back and even from watching the clips it 's mind boggling the number of turnovers and the the preciseness of the turnovers too where they needed it to be thrown right <laughs> to the guy under the basket for a dunk, and then you know the the, the margin of error was so
1: small uh, that that it does boggle the mind. As is often the case with these kind of math-defying moments, it's not that each particular crazy play is that crazy, though they were, but it's just that they happened in this sequence. Like You just don't see four in a row in that short amount of time.
2: Yeah, it's kind of the compounding effect where I likened it to since the Aggies scored six times in six possessions to end the game, and they also forced four turnovers in five possessions. (laughs) It was like flipping heads ten times in eleven tries, but even that vastly understates the, the unlikelihood of it happening, because you have to to take into account
1: the the clock on those possessions. So this is kind of a question I think that I find myself asking a lot when you encounter these outlier moments. Do they do anything for rethinking the kind of like our approach to statistics or modeling or do they you just kind of have to say this is why we like sports, and this is why an outlier is an outlier, and we just move on.
2: I think if you ran it again, we probably would have assigned a slightly higher chance of winning in retrospect, given you know if we had this game in our database. But what I found really interesting was how much of an outlier this was. Uh, we looked at comebacks with exactly thirty-five seconds left, <laughs> and the number of kind of uh, the points that you were down and, and successfully completed it. So there, uh, we looked at uh, I want to say fifteen thousand games over the last four. Years and there were eight comebacks from down six, four from down seven one from down eight, and then none from down nine, 10, 11, or 12 until this Texas A&M. So if you look at it kind of like plotted out like it's a curve, this one sort of is at the very far end of the tail of what you could conceivably come back on. And that does speak to not, not necessarily a failing in the algorithm, but just like this was the type of comeback that you probably won't ever see. They've been playing March Madness for, you know, more than a half century so you might live another half century and and play as many games and still not see something quite like this
1: again well neil Payne, thanks for doing this and look good news is for us basketball fans we're only a third of the way through this much madness that's right maybe a team will come back from down 20 with
2: 35 seconds left
1: all right man thanks thanks Chris Ingram is a reporter for The Washington Post. He writes mostly for Wonk blog, doing work that's pretty similar to a lot of what we do here at Five Thirty Eight, digging into data sets, highlighting interesting or weird numbers. And last summer, he wrote a blog post about a rural town in Minnesota that got him into a bit of trouble, but then ended up, well, it ended up changing his life. I recently got a chance to talk to him about that story, which I just love. Here is Chris describing how he first came to learn about Red Lake Falls.
0: Well, so I first learned about them last August. It was, you know, a typical August in DC, slow news month, we're looking for stories to write. I happened to stumble across this old obscure USDA data set called the Natural Amenities Index. Never heard of it before in my life. Most people haven't, I don't think. It's they, Basically, the USDA did this thing probably, I think, in the early 2000s where they compiled a bunch of metrics on things that make America's counties physically desirable places to live. You have things like hills and topography. You have water access, nice weather, low humidity, that kind of thing. And they actually crunched all these, there's something like eight variables, put them in an index, um, weighed them all, and then you know, they ranked all of the United States as 3,000 plus counties on these so-called natural amenities, which is kind of, it's the, the term, it's a weird uh, technical term, you can kind of shorthand it as natural beauty although that's not 100% right, because beauty is more of like an artistic term, or you know, a kind of a subjective term, but you can shorthand it beauty, and the way it turned out is this little uh, county in Minnesota I never heard it before in my life, called Red Lake County it ranked at the absolute bottom of this list of America's counties. Um, and so this was a pretty straightforward piece for me. I do these kind of county level data sets, county level maps a lot. You know, the the standard thing is to get the data, make a map, call out the top counties, call out the bottom counties, and basically call it a day. So this was pretty straightforward. I didn't think anything of it. I had to Google Red Lake County. So I kinda of threw that in there. I said, Yeah, this is the worst place to live in America according to the USDA, I called it a day, thought I'd be done of it. But that did not end up happening.
1: No, that certainly did <laughs> not, and we'll get there. But I mean I mean and maybe there's like a an actual show i need to do on the natural amenities index but why in the world is the usda keeping a data set on like natural beauty
0: well what they do is they um they were compiling this they do a lot of research on america's rural areas and trends affecting rural areas populations moving into and out of rural areas and they've done they've used this index in the reporting of um various things like they found that you know, counties with low natural amenities they tend to see more population drain than counties with higher natural amenities, which kind of makes sense, right? You want people want to live near the coast, they want to live near where it's warm or nice or whatever. So they use this in their research, and and other researchers have used it too to kind of figure out how the physical characteristics of a place um, impact other things in that place, whether it's economics, sociology, demographics, what have you.
1: As you said, this is kind of what you do for a living is dig into sort of obscure data sets. We have people on our staff mm-hmm. who do that as well and then just find mm-hmm. interesting trends and, and throw it up there. So you, you made a blog post and remind me, what was the headline of this post?
0: Every county in America ranked by scenery and climate. That, uh-huh. that was the initial headline.
1: And right. when what was the language that you used to characterize Red Lake County? So
0: the language that that really stuck into people's craw, I think. And it's funny because you know this, this is a thing you write; it's just kind of a throwaway line. Um, the absolute worst place to live in America is (parentheses) drum roll please, Red Lake County, Minnesota. Claim to fame: quote, "It is the only landlocked county in the United States that is surrounded by just two neighboring counties." End quote. That was kind of the start of it all. One sentence there, you know, one sentence that I toss away on like an August afternoon and don't think anything else of it.
1: And I do want to ask about the thought process of writing that sentence and kind of how Mm -hmm. you, in retrospect now, think about how you crafted that sentence. But Mm -hmm. to continue the narrative, what Mm -hmm. was the reaction from red lake falls or red lake county
0: the reaction and this was the interesting thing is it was very swift like even for online like the the story went up on twitter and within minutes i was getting kind of offended tweets from people in minnesota not just people in red lake county but like people from all over minnesota they said no wait this has to be wrong like you know here's this ranking you're saying that we're at the bottom for physical and natural beauty but look at all these beautiful places in our county or in our state or whatever and it was just it re- there was really Really just a huge outpouring of uh, of disagreement. And the interesting thing is that plenty of other places in the United States looked really bad on these rankings, too, right? Like, there were there were plenty of counties in, like, Iowa or Nebraska that were pretty close to the bottom of the list. Right. We're not when doing did, a
1: podcast about the second worst county, right? right?
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. But, like, nobody in Iowa or Nebraska had anything negative to say about it. I actually heard from one guy in Omaha who was like, yeah, you know, Omaha is kind of a dump. That sounds about right to me. So... It was striking that only people in Minnesota and in this particular area were really riled up enough to to respond to it, but
1: certainly something about quantifying it as the worst is probably what drew that out i mean if you 'd done another county and called that the worst, you probably would have heard from people there
0: yeah i, I think I think that 's definitely part of it i think I think there 's something magical about calling something the worst, even if like the statistical difference between the worst and the second worst is not necessarily significant but i've done plenty of things on all sorts of different topics uh you know agricultural and economic and sociological where you call out the best you call out the worst and you know nobody Mm -hmm. in the past at least it's been my experience that i haven't gotten this kind of reaction let me put it that way
1: So was your response to this to basically say, listen, I'm just the messenger, you know, your your beef is with the USDA, or (laughs) what was your thought process when you started to get these emails?
0: yeah it was it was kind of uh kind of don't shoot the messenger, but also you, like as a reporter, you have to kind of own it right like when you call something someplace the worst place to live in America in The Washington Post like you kind of have to own that and be like, okay, you know that this is something this is a judgment I made based on these numbers um you know so let's let's dig into this a little bit more so what we ended up doing is we ended up doing just kind of a a follow up Post where we included a bunch of the responses from people in Minnesota, from people in Red Lake, we included their photographs and everything. We included, I mean, we even within a day or two we had heard from the the senators and the state representatives. So we, Al Franken got us pretty good. He mm-hmm. said, actually, the worst place to live in America is the the Washington Post office in D.C. So that was you know that's a pretty good zinger there. Um, but yeah, so we we just kind of went with it. We said, well, if you know if these these folks say that they were wrong, we'll give them the platform and we uh you know we let them speak out. On
1: I mean, I have to ask about that, the way you characterize it. I mean, I know it was at mm-hmm. the bottom of the rankings, but is that just kind of how you like to write? Or do you feel pressure to kind of, like, make these grand, sweeping statements because you're writing for a, a tweet or for a headline? Right.
0: No, not necessarily. I mean, it was it was half tongue-in-cheek, right? I mean, because uh – you know, when you call someplace the absolute... I mean, with a drumroll, please, right? Like, right. if this is kind of... I mean, and we can get, like... We can step really back and talk about, like, you know, it, it, our, it, is, like, natural beauty, is that, like, a, a sensible way to uh, to evaluate an actual place? Can you even quantify that? And if we're just talking about beauty, no, I don't think you can. But to the extent that we can talk about these things with numbers, um, you know, when some places at the bottom, it's, like, people... We found, and you, you guys probably know this too, that people really respond to rankings. They really mm-hmm. respond when, you know, if they're at the top of a ranking, if they're at the bottom of a ranking. So ranking things has always been, and this isn't a new thing, like it's it's kind of new. I mean, the growth of data journalism in recent years, there's... a there are many more ways and probably better ways to rank things overall, but news outlets have been ranking states and counties and places for, you know, for decades. You know, this is kind of just something that people are inherently interested in, I think. And, uh, and you
1: know, I'll say that my colleague, Walt Hickey, who I know you you know as well, you and he, I think write about sort of similar stuff and like these sort of quirky data sets but he also I was mentioned that I was going to chat with you and he he said that exact same thing that just like some of his most successful articles have always been rankings and particularly comparisons between places you know people Mm -hmm. tend to really like that and it just kind of makes me think that like You know, obviously there's a natural inclination towards rankings, but also people like quantification, but then maybe this is showing that they like it when it's about someone else. And then when the quantification (laughs) is about themselves, especially if it's negative, then it feels Mm -hmm. too reductive and it feels like, oh no, you know, we're, we're much more than just this data set.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and I think this is one of the things this conversation is moving toward, but it does point out the limitations of some of these rankings. And this is true, you know, not only about this particular data set, but it's probably true about anything you like, even things that we've. That are really just well-regarded rankings like economic data like jobs data you know you could call it i don't know if it's some county in alabama or mississippi that's the worst for education or jobs and you call that out you can actually go down there and visit the place just because a a place is at the bottom of some abstract ranking doesn't mean it's you know an unredeemable hellhole like you go there and there's but there's probably regular people there's probably a diversity of people of all different educational stripes and statuses and a place is more than the sum of its rankings, I guess, and I think that's kind of the uh, the, the overarching message here. That at least that I've been, you know, <laughs> learning a lot since this whole thing started.
1: Okay, so let's get back to the narrative and talk about how you actually learned, you know, that lesson. So, okay, mm-hmm. so you write this piece, you get some pushback, oh. you then uh, write a little follow up, but then you went and visited uh, Red Lake Falls, which is Red, Red Lake Falls is kind of the seat of the count, of Red Lake County, is that right?
0: Yeah. So Red Lake Falls is the seat of the county. So what happened was a uh, uh, a local businessman out there—he actually runs a, a tubing company, a tubing and kayaking company on one of the rivers out there that meets in Red Lake Falls. He was like, "Hey, this has been—you know, this has been a really exciting thing for our county because Red Lake County—it's you know—it's tiny. There's maybe four thousand people. They're not in the news a lot. So he was like, "You know, this has been kind of an interesting, fun thing. And yeah, people are riled up, but you should come out here and take a look. I think it would be an interesting story for you." And so that sounded like kind of a fun thing to do. And by that point I was curious myself, right? Like I was like, okay, so this is a big enough thing that like, I'm thinking about this a lot more than I think about the typical story. So maybe I should go out there and take a look. My editors were like, yeah, go do it. <laughs> like I, I kind of get the sense that they were kind of throwing me to the wolves and they were like, yeah, go on out there. See what happens. <laughs> like <laughs> Maybe, you know, maybe you'll get a, attacked by villagers with pitchforks or something. I think they were kind of <laughs> just doing a little experimentation on my, uh, at my expense. It, it was funny because, uh, you know i've been talking to my wife about this and she was she was 100 convinced that this was some sort of trap right she was like oh yeah these people are gonna be really angry and they're gonna like they're gonna like mob you or something there was a a county commissioner out there a guy named chuck simpson who was quoted in the star tribune as saying something like well you can tell that chris ingram that he can kiss my butt because this is like the most beautiful most beautiful place i know of in america but you were so, like if that's
1: the upper limit of like how might my- there Willing to talk about me, then yeah, then I probably have like a sense that was. Of like...
0: I think that was that was the meanest thing I think anyone actually said, even in like the, the internet comments and Twitter, which by normal internet discourse is pretty tame. And it's funny because when I when I did go out there and I was talking to people, and a lot of the folks I was talking to, they're like, "Oh gosh, you know, we're really sorry about some of the negative comments you've been getting and mm-hmm. how mean people have been." I'm like, "No, you don't <laughs> understand. Like this isn't this doesn't mean like this has been all very." very very polite and very uh measured
1: so describe your
0: visit yeah so i flew in so to to get to red lake county you have to you basically you first fly into minneapolis from dc you first fly to minneapolis then you take a smaller plane the closest uh quote-unquote big airport is grand forks which is across the border in north dakota it's about 45 minutes away uh, i think they have maybe two or three runways so it's a tiny airport so i flew in there uh, you know, drove across the state line, went to Red Lake Falls. I, you know, drove, drove into the town not knowing what to expect. I was supposed to meet folks at the uh, county courthouse. And I got out, and there was, like just this huge gaggle of local press like you know press from Minneapolis and from North Dakota and a whole bunch uh, of uh, the, the local residents were there and there was a they had the high school's uh, color guard or marching band there so it was really I mean they really rolled out the the red carpet to a guy who all they knew of me was that I was some jerk from D.C. who said something not so nice about them <laughs> on the Washington Post website um, so that was kind of overwhelming and and uh, really amazing. It kind of set this tone for the, you know, the two or three days that I spent there.
1: And so you ended up meeting people and chatting with people. But I'm, I'm curious, like, how the kind of data set that started all of this, whether you were sort of mm-hmm. carrying that in your head and then comparing it to what you actually saw on the ground and what it was like to have mm-hmm. those two confront each other.
2: Well, and,
0: and you know, it's, so it's funny, you look at, so you look at just this data set, uh, you look at the in that USDA data set, and the way Red Lake County falls is it's like, you know, the summer's are really hot, the winters are really cold, it is flat as a board, Um if you're just looking at this USDA spreadsheet this is all you get out of the place but then you actually go there and you see you know it's kind of the farmland rolling out and you're you know driving along these roads it's it's an interesting environment it's kind of right on the boundary between the the eastern forest and the the western prairie so the the landscape is kind of interesting in in that respect and you you just kind of go to a place and you're kind of you're overwhelmed by the full sensory experience of being in a new place. It is very different, say from downtown DC where I'm used to being. Um, so yeah, that created quite a, a stark contrast.
1: And I, think it's a reminder that any data set is you know, kind of almost by definition taking a particular slice, right? I, mm-hmm. I mean, in reading your piece about uh, what you learned, you know, you you have a little riff about all the economic metrics that could describe Red Lake, mm-hmm. and it's like actually doing pretty well. You know, unemployment isn't that high, median income is pretty good, it's not one mm-hmm. of these kind of post-industrial towns, There's actually a thriving kind of industrial base. So it just mm-hmm. makes you think that if you had taken that data slice as your first impression of it, and perhaps you would have had this very different notion of this town.
0: That's what kind of came to me. What we ended up doing when I went out there is the uh, a lot of the local residents, they put together kind of a tour of the entire county for me, where we all kind of uh, piled onto this bus and rode around to the different towns in the county and visited different people. You know, one of the really interesting things about the place that has stuck with me is that the, the big narrative we hear about rural areas and small towns in the United States is pretty much always one of decline right, like manufacturing jobs are going away, people are moving out of the country and into the cities, and small towns are struggling. I mean, that's almost the cliche. So, it was really, it really made an impression on me being in this rural, uh, small town area, where things, I mean, it's not I don't want to say you know, thriving. I mean, what, what place is thriving? But things seem pretty healthy there, right? Like, there's, there's a functioning economy. The, the farm industry is doing pretty well out there. There is a lot of civic pride. And, they, you know, they face a lot of the challenges that any small town or rural area face but they seem to be handling it quite well and they seem to be doing pretty well you know I'm from so I'm from upstate New York myself uh, you know an area with a lot of small towns up there and one of the striking things was that the small towns up there do seem to be like really in a state of disrepair that kind of whole rust belt Mm -hmm. thing where they're just abandoned properties and everything's just kind of overgrown and gone to scene and that wasn't the impression uh, that I got uh, in northwestern Minnesota it was a very different kind of small town uh, narrative, I think, that's going on there. It's important to acknowledge that narrative. I think there's a really different story to be told uh, in towns like that, and probably not just in northwestern Minnesota, but I assume all over the country where there are, you know, what is it, one in five Americans live outside of the big metropolitan areas. There's a lot going on there. But because media tends to be Clustered in these these coastal or urban cities, we just don't tend to hear about that because, as reporters, we're often not not there.
1: So when you wrote up your experience about visiting the town and meeting, you know, all sorts of interesting people and getting a sense of the community, did you worry about kind of overcompensating in the other direction and writing too feel good of a story about small town America?
0: Yeah, of course. And like, you know, you don't want to write like some goofy, like feel good puff piece. And you also I was really like conscious about, you know, not trying to to, to characterize people or to, to reduce people to either some kind of like, you know, some kind of hayseed stereotype or like just other fanciful small town stereotype that you do hear about often when people from, from city areas go and write about, you know, places where they're just not familiar with. So I was really... Conscious about not trying to make any broad pronouncements about who these people were. I mean, these are just you know the people who live there. are like people who live anywhere else. You know, they're they're complicated, normal people with you know normal cares and concerns. So I, I tried uh, really hard not to to get overly reductionist in my characterization of of them or the place where they live.
1: Okay, let's get to the final act of this uh, story, which is, you know, so it's one thing to like, write this piece and have this reaction and go and pay a visit and all these things. You went a step that I think a lot of people are reacting to by going, wait, like, really? (laughs) Are you kidding me? And that is you are considering or you're planning to actually move to this town.
0: Yeah, no, it's actually happening. Like, so we, we are definitely moving to this town. We are moving there. We're moving to Red Lake County in May. Uh-huh. But, and, you know, this is the interesting thing. Everyone is like, wow, that is such, a, like, a weird, crazy thing to do. Like, most reporters would, you know, just append a correction to the end of the story and be done with it, right? Like, you're really going big or going home. But there are actually just a confluence of things in my personal life that made this, like, seem like a really sensible thing to do. This was largely a personal decision, uh, uh, less so a business one, but my wife and I, we have two twins who are two years old and you know we're from small towns ourselves we've always wanted to kind of raise them at least for some time in a more of a rural environment because that's what feels more like home to us and so we were thinking of how to do that and just a big part of this story of actually moving out there to boils down to economics and the economics of living in a place like dc where the cost of living are really high and really expensive versus living in a, a place like northwestern minnesota where the cost of living are very low um you know we were thinking about this for a long time uh we were thinking well where could we go could i work remotely would it even be possible and i think it was my mom who one evening she was like you know, why don't you guys move to that nice little county that you wrote about last summer? And we kind of laughed at it. We thought it was like a fake joke. haha. Ha, yeah, we'll go to Red Lake County. But the more we thought about it, the more it kind of grew on us. And there were actually, there were a lot of things, as i kind of alluded to, about the place that I really liked. I liked the, you know, the sense of civic pride there was really quite striking. Just the the landscape itself was really quite nice. Um, like everything just kind of felt like clean and wholesome. Like everything even smelled good out there, which is you know, kind of a bizarre thing to say, but I swear to God, like every house you walked in, it just like smelled like clean and like like wood and, and grain and stuff. So it, it made a real, like kind of a, a 360 degree sensory, uh, impression mm-hmm. on me. And so we started thinking about it. We're like, well, could we do this? And so, you know, my, my, uh, my wife was really hesitant about it. She was, you know, she's worried about the Minnesota cold, but, she was like, you know, we should do this. I mean, this would be kind of an adventure. It would be a great thing for the for the boys to get them out of the northeastern area for a while. And so that's what we're going to do.
1: I think we have a sense of kind of how out there to you know, people tend to make decisions that they are already kind of primed to, to make. And then they get tipped in one right. direction or another just by the data mm-hmm. or some experience or whatever. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if, you know, some county in Iowa happened to be at the bottom of the list? Would you be moving there instead?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well I really I really wish that the USDA had put some county in Hawaii at the bottom of the <laughs> list, you know, <laughs> that, would, that. would have been a nice change of pace. But no, I don't know. I mean, if I'd been some kind of, I don't know, it, it this it would depend on if I had had the same experience of actually yeah. going out there and seeing the place, you know. I I, I could totally I could definitely see that happening. But uh yeah, you know, just in this case, it, it uh, just going out to the place, it made a big impression on me. Like, I thought about it for a long time after visiting. Like, I was having dreams about the, the place and just dreams about being out there. Uh, and so, you know, basing, like, life decisions on dreams versus basing them on data. Like, those are two kind of opposite extremes. But they all kind of funneled into this, this decision to make this change. Yeah, life. so,
1: you know, as we wrap up, like, I'm curious if you could get a little philosophical there about kind of, like, head sure. versus heart thinking and how you kind of mm-hmm. – whether this has changed your notion of how you approach data sets? Because I can tell, you know, mm-hmm. from your writing and even just talking to you, you're a very rational thinker. I think you're attracted to mm-hmm. data and quantification, but has this changed your approach to that kind of thinking? I think so.
0: I think, you know, every time that I write about some, some data set now and, you know, some kind of ranking or some quantification, you know, I, I will think probably i'll think twice in the back of my mind when you're you know you're characterizing something as worst or best or whatever i don't know that that necessarily means i'll write about it any differently but like i'll i'll be much more conscious of that gap between data and lived experience i think that's the big takeaway from me here is that it's just a better understanding of my limits and you know the, the interesting thing is of course like of course like any place or any person or any, or any measurable phenomenon is in real life greater than the sum of its data, right? You could go out to any person on the street and you could say, do you think your life could be accurately characterized in a spreadsheet or no? And they'd be like, well, no, that's stupid. But as you know, as media folks, as data reporters, as people who spend a big chunk of our day with our noses buried in spreadsheets, it can be easy to lose track of that really basic fact. You know, I think that's just a natural uh you know, a side effect of just doing that kind of work. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's something that it's good every once in a while to go out and, you know, get your hands dirty and just remind yourself of these are yes, these are metrics, these are, you know, uh concrete measures, but just remind yourself the the difference between the metric and what it is you're measuring.
1: Uh so Chris can data journalists come visit you once you move out there
0: absolutely yeah look the Ingram farmstead is going to be open for visitors and
1: what's the average temperature in in winter
0: uh well th- the average temperature I think in January and February doesn't get much above zero and that's like that's average factoring
1: in high and low so so we'll, we'll visit in the summer <laughs> yeah absolutely all right well Chris Ingram thank you so much and congratulations on the move I mean anytime someone's making a kind of big life move like this it's that's very exciting
0: yeah it's funny like yeah thiss Everyone's saying, like, congratulations. And I'm like, I'm just moving. Like, I'm not, you know, I didn't win an award or anything. Like, we're just, you know, area reporter, like, moves. <laughs> <laughs> reporter relocates, right? But yeah, no, thank you. It's uh, been a pleasure to be here.
1: You can find links to Chris's reporting and some pictures of his visits to Red Lake County on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the points editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. For the last several months in this part of the credits, I have said our intern is Jonathan Yales, but this is the last time I will say that Jonathan's internship has come to an end, which is a total bummer. The good news is I think Jonathan's going to be in the mix on some other 538 projects for a bit longer, so you'll continue to hear his name. But Jonathan, thank you. Literally could not have made the show without you. And everyone else, do remember that name, Jonathan Yales. Joel Werner, as always, helped mix and produce this episode. And my name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me, podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. Don't forget, we've got a data visualization challenge going on with our friends at Dear Data. Spend a week tracking your podcast listening, visualize it on a postcard, and drop it in the mail to me. And this is really exciting. Just as I was walking into the studio, the very first postcard arrived on my desk. So at least one of you out there took up the challenge. But listen, if you're on the fence, it's not too late to start. You can find full information on our website. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast and host of the upcoming West Wing weekly podcast, which I, along with basically all of America, couldn't be more excited about. So check out both of those if you haven't already. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and drop us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.